the love of God, the creative love of God is the most powerful force in the cosmos. And it is the truest thing about us all that we are beloved of God. It's the truest thing, whether we're thinking globally about humanity, whether we're thinking communally, communally as a people, uh, or whether we're thinking individually. We think about humanity and all the things that we might want to say about the nature of humanity. And I got some things that I say about the nature of humanity right now. You got some things too, I bet. Maybe right now we're in a season where all those things wouldn't be too positive. But the truth is that the most true thing about humanity, the greatest truth about humanity is that God loves us all and that every single soul on this planet is beloved of God. And that's the truest thing about us all. When we think about communally, about a church, what it means to be a people, about a community, you know what the truest thing that you could say about the Central Church of Christ is? It's that it's a people loved by God. Now, there's all kinds of other things that you might say. You might, might talk about the program, about the kind of people that go here, about the sort of things that make up our particular mission as a church. But the truest thing, none of those things would be as true as this. That God loves this church. Now, not more than the other churches down the street, okay? I'm not saying that. But God loves this church. And that's the truest thing about the people that are gathered here in this place today. Is it? Can you think of anything that would be more of a foundational bedrock truth about central than what Kirk said about being at the table, that we come and we were, we're here to remember that, that we're loved by God. It's at the core of the truth of who we are, and nothing can ever become more important than that. And it's true for us each individually, too. Every man, woman, and child in this space. All the things that you might use to describe yourself. All the things that you might say about who you are. All the things that other people might have to say about who you are. The truest thing. The truest, most unchanging thing about who you are is this. Your beloved of God. God loves you relentlessly and fiercely. God loves me relentlessly and fiercely. God loves each one of us relentlessly and fiercely. And that is the truest thing about who each of us really is. Do you believe it? I hope. I hope. 
that you believe it now, and I hope you believe it even more deeply tomorrow, and I hope you believe it more deeply two weeks from now, and I hope that we are all headed to a day when all of the illusions are dispelled about whatever we might say was more important about ourselves, because we are all headed for a day when we will realize that that is the truest thing of who we are. That we are creatures made in the image of a God who loves us so much. It's the truest thing about each of us. And I hope it becomes the drum beat that orders our lives together. Now, I'm starting off with all this today because it's true. You'd always start by saying one true thing, right? I wanted to start today because this is my first day. Hey, if you're new at Central this morning, me too. <laughs> Let's get to know each other because, you know. And I wanted the first thing out of my mouth to you to be a reminder of how deeply God loves you. I want you to know it. I want that to be the first thing that I've got to say here. Uh, last week, uh, frankly, I, I ended with something like that because I wanted that to be the last word that I had at, at, at Cedar Lane. I want it to be the first word and the last word and every word in between. And I hope that's, I hope that's just in our nature for that to be part of our conversation. But also wanted to say all that today because we're starting with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is this set of core teachings of Jesus, the one that we follow together. It's like this dense set of things that Jesus had to say when he was teaching disciples, his disciples what it meant to be his followers. And there are lots of different ways of understanding what the sermon is and the things that it has to do. But in order to really deeply receive the words of the Sermon on the Mount or any other words of Jesus, but specifically these words of the Sermon on the Mount, in order to receive them so that they can nurture and be become fruitful in your life, you need to understand that they come from a Jesus who deeply loves you. That's the origin and the source of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, a, it's the most concentrated message that's there in the sermon. It, it can be hiding sometimes because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to give us some do this, don't do this kind of stuff. And we can hear that and think of them as words that are uh, coming from Jesus, just like another to-do list that somebody is imposing on us uh, outside. And I don't know about you, but I hate being told what to do, all right? You can hear those words and they can feel like, okay, this is just another list of something that somebody's telling me to do. It's another burdensome thing to keep up with. But that's, that's not what the sermon is really doing. When we read scripture, we always need to come to scripture and ask for any piece of it. Like this is kind of part of our toolkit for reading scripture. 
we always ask, what is this text trying to do? Now, that may be a different question than you're used to asking. Most of the time, when we come to Scripture, we start with, what does this say? And then how do I respond to it, right? Like those are kind of our normal questions for the text. But we need to always remember that Scripture comes to us as part of God's ongoing mission in the world. Scripture isn't just trying to say something, it's trying to do something. It's trying to do something. It has a missional purpose woven within it. And God's Spirit provided each part of the book to us in just the way that the community of God's people needed it in that moment because God was trying to do something with his people. God was trying to accomplish something. God was bringing about his mission and scripture comes to us as part of that missional movement of God. So we always come back to the text and we ask, not just what does this say, we ask what is it trying to do? What does this text trying to do. When we ask this about the Sermon on the Mount, and we might start by saying, you know, what is the, what is the book of Matthew? The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so we might ask, it's a good question, like what is Matthew trying to do? What is God's Spirit trying to do in this book as a whole with this sermon? But another way we might ask it, I ask a similar and related question, is by thinking about Jesus standing there in front of a crowd with his uh, disciples there gathered close to him. And we might ask ourselves, very well ask ourselves, what is Jesus trying to do in this moment? It says that Jesus saw the crowds, and when he saw the crowds, he gathered his disciples to him and began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? What is Jesus trying to do in that moment with these words? And the good thing is that at least in this instance, we don't really have to guess. We don't have to, we're not left on our own just to try to figure that out because the Sermon on the Mount ends with a piece that tells us pretty clearly what he's trying to do with it. And it's an old familiar piece that uh, is irresistible to many of us that uh, grew up uh, going to the children's church with Miss Tammy. The familiarity may not be in the, the, the scriptures, you might not be able to quote them from memory, but I bet if I start off like this, wise man built his house upon the, I bet you know it. And if we start the other verse, the foolish man built his house upon the... And then there's that other verse, which is the blessings come down as the... Yeah, that verse is terrible. That's not actually in the Sermon on the Mount. It drives me crazy. Um, so, I don't know. I don't know why that one's in there. They just made that up. They were really going great with that song until they just made up a verse. You know, anyway, a little mini rant there. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. And we're in chapter 7. You want to flip there and look, look with me? Chapter 7, verse 24. Goes like this. Everyone who hears these words of mine 
and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now this is the very last part of the Sermon on the Mount. Right after Jesus says those words, he says, let us stand and sing. Okay, this is this is the ending. This is the punchline to the whole thing. Okay, and I think it was a while before I realized that. Like I knew that song, right? The wise man built his, but I forgot the part that was right before it in the text where Jesus says, "And everyone who hears these words of mine is like." We know that Jesus has something to say about the difference between building a house on rock and building a house on sand. But let us not forget that the difference is everyone who hears these words and acts on them. Everyone who listens to these words and does them or does not do Jesus says, everyone who hears these words, what are these words? What are these words that are the difference between a foundation of rock and a foundation of sand? What are the words that are a difference between a building a house that is destined to fall and building a house which is destined to stand? What are the words? Don't you want to know what those words are? There are words. There are words. And I don't believe in magic words, really. Although I kind of do. There are certain words that if you do them and you say them and you do them, something changes in the world. I, I did a wedding yesterday. Uh, I, got to, I got to be a part of a wedding for one of my uh, old lifelong friends. And at the end of this wedding service, I stood, I, I, was, well, I was already standing up. I stood there. And I raised my hand over the, the bride and the groom, and I said, I pronounce them husband and wife. And those words, like magic, cause something that was not to become. But they're not magic in the sense that they're irresistible, right? Because a marriage that is formed by those words has to go and be formed by actions and be supported by a life of faithfulness and love and all that sort of stuff too, right? So there's the magic, but then there's the real magic. The real magic is not that the words are said. It's that they're lived. And Jesus says that's the way it is with his words too. And I think it's true of all the words that Jesus has to say to us and all the different places where he tells us about God and about God's will, but they are specifically given to us. He's specifically talking about the words of this sermon, right? Everyone who hears these words, and it's not everyone who hears these words has a house built on rock. 
Everybody that builds their house on sand hears the words too. The difference, Jesus says, is in doing them. So coming back to our question here, what is it that Jesus is doing? What is Jesus trying to do in this sermon? What was he trying to do when he looked at the crowd and said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? What is it that Jesus is trying to do when he looked on them and said, you have, uh, you have heard it said? Whether he's talking about uh, adultery or anger or the way that you love an enemy. What is Jesus trying to do when he teaches his disciples about what it means to pray in secret instead of praying for everybody to see it? What is Jesus trying to do when he tries to tell his disciples to not live a life of cultivated worry and anxiousness? What is Jesus trying to do in this sermon? And he's told us exactly what he was trying to do with all his words. He's trying to save us from building lives that eventually will collapse on themselves. Why? Because he loves us so deeply. He loves us so deeply and fully and fiercely and relentlessly that Jesus is not content for us to just go on on our self-destructive path and to just, just let it be. Instead, Jesus gives us a way towards life. He gives us a way of living that turns away from the self-destructive and communally destructive, humanity-destructive path that we are all on at times. And he teaches us what it means to build houses built on rock. That's what the sermon, that's what the sermon is trying to do. And the giving of it is an act of love. And everything that we're going to read in this sermon is a way of love. It's Jesus' gift of love to us when he tells us in the Beatitudes that the world is not like everybody else thinks it is. That the people that turn out blessed are actually people that look like they're not at the beginning. And those counterintuitive Beatitudes are a way of Jesus giving us truth that will end up setting our lives on rock. When Jesus talks to us about what it means to not just love those who love us, but to even learn to love those and pray for those who are our enemies, the people that are persecuting us, he's trying to show us that if we can stop only having love, thinking about love as something that gives back to us all the time, if we can learn a kind of love that is not dependent on whether the, how the other person acts, that it's a way of building a house on rock. When Jesus tells us that there comes a time when you realize that you've got something against your brother or something against your sister, 
And you don't come on to church like nothing ever happened. Instead, you turn around and you make things right, right then. When you realize that there's something standing between you and somebody else, you find a way, you, re- you pursue making it right. You pursue reconciliation right then and there. And Jesus is telling us that, not because he wants to lay some extra burden on us, some other way of feeling guilty. What Jesus is trying to do is lead us away from the sand foundation of all the grudges that we might nurture and allow to continue on forever and ever. Because Jesus knows that if we just nurture those things, that if we avoid reconciliation, we we forget that voice, and we just kind of go on building up conflict on conflict on conflict, Jesus knows that that will lead to a collapse in our lives. When Jesus talked, about not worrying about you know, the things that we're going to clothe ourselves with or the things that we're going to eat and put into our body. He's telling us that because he knows that to nurture such anxiety is a way of death. He's not trying to make us feel, feel guilty for the things that we worry about. What he's trying to do is set us free so, so that we can be fully alive with all, without all the weight of that crushing anxiety. He's trying to help us build houses on rock. Now, what I just said is all still a little bit too individualistic. What I've just said is good news for each of us. It's Jesus's way of saving our lives, of preventing the collapse in each of our lives. But it's not just that individual way of reading the sermon that's important to us because Jesus doesn't just love me and Jesus doesn't just love the central church, but Jesus loves the world because Jesus's love is not just for us. Jesus's word is not just for us either. And the words of this sermon are not just about me building a house on rock and me not building a house on sand. They're about us. And they're about the world and the witness of that. When I think about what it means to be a person who's trying to build a house built on the foundation of the word of Jesus... It's not that I can just do that in my happy little box of living in a phone booth, you know, without anybody else involved, not ever thinking about anybody else. But I have to do it in a way with other people, like the community of people that are trying to do that together. And I have to do it for the sake of my neighbor and for the sake of the other people that I'm going to rub shoulders with and that I'm going to find a way to like, uh, you know, interact with in my life. It's for the people that uh, have kids that play on my daughter's soccer teams. And it's for the kids, for the people that show up at the same band rehearsals that I go to, okay, for, for my other daughter. It's for the people in the neighborhood that I'm going to try to find, plant myself in and move in. And I gotta, I'm going to be so awkward about sticking my nose over the fence and like figuring out who the people that live next door to me are. Man, I hope they're okay with that. I hope it's not too weird. It'll be weird. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be okay. For the people that I work with. And for all the people in your life that you interact with in those different ways too. 
couple of things that are happening today. Uh, the well, well women, well women. That's a wonderful play on words. Did you make that up? Oh, you should. Oh, Mary Joy, I should have known. Yeah, that makes sense. Where you at, Mary Joy? Are you in here? Oh, man, you're way back there. Jesus, the woman on the well, the Gospel of John, tells us the truth, tells her the truth about her own life, giving her a way of like reorienting who her life is. That word was not just for her. She goes into her community and she tells all her neighbors, there's somebody that told the, me everything that was true about everything I've ever done. Jesus was making her well, but her wellness wasn't just for her. It was for her community. Tomorrow, uh, we'll start here. Uh, what time does it start, Travis? 8.30. Kids camp is here. Okay. And uh, there are going to be some 35 or so kids from our community. And I'm saying ours from now on. Okay. Kids from our community who are going to be here. And they need to meet and rub shoulders with and be taught by people who know what it is to live with a love that just isn't just for all the people that already love them back. They need to know what it's like to meet somebody who isn't constantly anxious about everything going on in the world. Somebody that can live free from worry. And they need to see the witness of people whose spirituality isn't just something that happens in public, but is internalized deeply within their own souls. They need to rub shoulders with people who have internalized the message of the Beatitudes too, who understand that sometimes people aren't just what they look like on the outside, but there's a blessedness that somehow doesn't show up in spreadsheets sometimes. They need to see people like that. This city needs to see people like that. People who have taken the words of Jesus, listened carefully and deeply. The city needs people who have not just listened to the Sermon on the Mount but people who are willing to do it. People who are willing to live out the way of Jesus. When we live like this, it makes a difference. It makes a difference for us, for the fate of our lives, the way that our life is going to turn out. And whether we're going to be able to withstand the storms or not depends somewhat in some great manner on how well we listen to and do the words of Jesus. But it's not just our own fate that depends on it. The world around us desperately needs to not just hear the words of Jesus, but it needs to see them, to see them enfleshed in people, enfleshed in you as you take his word.
live it out. This word is not just for us. But it's part of Jesus' mission to give it to his disciples and to let that word grow in us and then to bear fruit so that other people can receive its blessedness too, right? So the question for us at the end is, at the beginning, the question for us is, what is Jesus trying to do with this sermon, right? Jesus is trying to bless us with this sermon, trying to save our lives, trying to give us a foundation for life. But he's trying to do that not just for us, but for other people's sake too. So our last question is, will we let Jesus's word do its work? Will we let it do its work within us in the, in the messing with our lives and, and shaping our lives and really forming us into a new kind of people? And will we let Jesus's word do its work, not just in us, but through us? As it gives witness to the people around us, too. So this is what we're going to do this summer. It's a lifelong project, really. But this summer, we're going to carefully work through the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to try to, like Jesus says, listen and hear the words from beginning with the Beatitudes next week all the way uh, working through every piece of it. We're going to do it in our classes on Sunday mornings right before worship. We're going to do it in the sermon space here, too. And as we do it, let's be careful not just to listen to the word. Let's be a people that is willing to do it. We stand with me and let's pray together. Let's ask God's spirit to be at work within us as we receive the word and to help us to live it out uh, in the world around us. Let's pray together. Oh, giver of all good things the one who loves us through and through and loves our neighbors and even our enemies deeply. Oh God, you have given us a great gift in the words of Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount. And so God, we pray that you will help us to be attentive, to be good listeners to the sermon. And Father, help us to be people who will live it out well so that your name can be praised and honored among our neighbors, just as it is out of our own mouths here in worship today. And God may all of our community join together in the hymn of heaven. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.